Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 347. It's titled, Should You Invest in Frontier Markets? This week, MSCI, a leading provider of indexes and analytics, is issuing their annual classification review report. In this report, MSCI classifies a particular country's stock market, ranks it, whether it's a developed market, an emerging market, a frontier market, or a standalone market. And those classifications then are used to determine what index the particular country or market is in. And we'll look at the differences between those broad categories. But this is a big deal for countries because if they move up to a developed market or from frontier to emerging markets, that can attract additional investment and capital flows into the country. Conversely, there's the potential to be downgraded to a lower tier market. MSCI analyzes over 80 markets. 23 are considered developed and comprise the MSCI World Index. There are 27 emerging markets that make up the MSCI Emerging Markets Index and combine the 23 developed countries and the 27 emerging markets countries make up the MSCI All-Country World Index. Except that index, the ACWI, doesn't actually include all countries. There are 27 frontier markets and 11 standalone markets, which don't even meet the criteria for inclusion in the frontier market index. The standalone markets include Jamaica, Panama, Trinidad, and Tobago, Bosnia, Herzegovina, Bulgaria, Malta, Ukraine, Botswana, Zimbabwe, Lebanon, and Palestine. They're not included in any index at all. MSCI's classification report is based on some work they released earlier this month titled the Global Market Accessibility Review Report. That report is used by institutional investors to track, as MSCI describes, the evolution of market accessibility in individual countries. How welcome is that particular country's regulatory structures and markets to investments from investors outside of the country? The criteria that MSCI uses includes economic development, the size of the market, the liquidity, and accessibility. It rates across 18 different metrics, with the highest rating being no issues. The second is no major issues, but improvements are possible. The third is improvements needed, and the extent of those improvements will be assessed. Obviously, those countries that have no issues become part of the developed market index, while those that need improvement 
on many of the criteria are frontier markets or even standalone markets, and those in between are emerging markets. The criteria that MSCI uses includes openness to foreign ownership. What are the qualifications of investors to be able to invest in the market? Are there limits to foreign ownership? And do foreign investors have equal rights as domestic investors? They evaluate the ease of capital flows and outflows. How easy is it to put money to work in the particular market and to withdraw funds? They look at the efficiency of the operational framework, such as what does it take for an investor to register and to set up an account? They look at the market infrastructure, including how trades are cleared and settled. What about custody? What about securities lending or short selling? Is that available? So the whole trading framework. MSCI looks at the availability of investment instruments. Are there stocks available? And finally, they look at the stability of the overall institutional framework. How stable are those mechanisms? The brokerage firms, the regulators, the rules. Is it consistent across time? In last year's classification report, MSCI made some adjustments. For example, Kuwait was reclassified in late 2020 from a frontier market to an emerging market. That added 21 securities to the MSCI Emerging Markets Index. In last year's classification report, Iceland moved from a standalone market to a frontier market, and that change actually just took place last month. Iceland now makes up 9% of the MSCI Frontier Market Index. Last year's report also expressed concerns regarding Argentina and the potential that that could be downgraded from the emerging markets classification due to capital controls. There was also concern regarding Turkey, that Turkey could be downgraded to frontier markets or even a standalone markets because of the ability to access the Turkish equity market. In this episode, we're going to look at frontier markets and decide whether they are a worthy investment or not. As I was doing the research, I was fascinated by the sheer size of frontier markets in terms of population, 2.2 billion people, a third of the world's population. Yet the economic impact at this point is still small, only about 3.5% of the world's gross domestic product the monetary value of goods and services produced. A third of the world's population produces less than 5% of economic output. The size of the stock market's even smaller. Frontier markets make up less than 1% of global stock market capitalization. That's the size of the equity market as determined by the price of a particular company times the shares outstanding. Less than 1%. And there aren't even that many stocks. There are 3,000 stocks that comprise the MSCI All-Country World Index, which is both developed and emerging markets. There are 1,400 emerging market stocks. Yet in the MSCI Frontiers Market Index, there's only 81 stocks. The countries that comprise that index, and I'll just go through the list because I think it's helpful and instructive to know what's there. There's Croatia, Estonia, Iceland. Lithuania, Kazakhstan, Romania, Serbia, Slovenia. Other countries include Kenya, Morocco, Nigeria, Bahrain, Jordan, 
Oman, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Vietnam. The largest country within the index, as measured by market capitalization or size, is Vietnam. It comprises 30% of the frontier market index. Morocco is 12%. Iceland's 8%. Kenya is 7%. Kazakhstan is 7%. In looking at ways to invest, the primary ETF I found for U.S.-based investors is the iShares MSCI Frontier and Select Emerging Market ETF. I'm not sure exactly when iShares renamed it, but the largest weight in that ETF is Kuwait at 19%. And as I mentioned, Kuwait was upgraded from a frontier market to an emerging market. The second largest weight in that ETF is Vietnam at 15%. That ETF only has about $465 million in assets. The expense ratio is 0.79%, and there's 159 stocks. One of the things you'll see with frontier markets is that a large percentage of those companies are financial companies. Within the MSCI Frontier Market Index, financials make up 35%. The second largest weight is communication services at 13%, followed by real estate at 11%. Within the iShares MSCI Frontier and Select Emerging Markets ETF, tickers FM, the top sector is financials at 44% followed by communications at 15%. This is not a very big market. Very small relative to the overall size of the global market. Fairly concentrated in terms of the number of securities relative to 3,000 in the global stock market, less than 100 in the frontier markets, and then the iShares ETF has 159 stocks. And that certainly is diversified, but relative to the global market, not so much. What is the opportunity of investing in the frontier markets? Why would someone invest? A primary reason is demographics. The working age population of frontier markets is growing as a percent of the total population. Having a growing working age population potentially can lead to greater economic output, more workers producing more. More economic output potentially could lead to higher earnings growth for those companies, which could translate in higher stock market returns. Now, those are all conditional phrases. It could. It might. There's no guarantee. But the demographics are in frontier markets' favor, whereas for the global stock market, the countries that make that up, particularly developed markets, the percentage of working-age population is shrinking. That same trend holds for emerging markets, including China. A second benefit of frontier markets is there is increasingly more urbanization. The United Nations forecasts that 77% of frontier markets' population will be living in urban areas by 2050, compared to 68% today. Potentially, more urbanization will lead to greater productivity as workers and companies can collaborate more, leading to more output produced per hour worked. The problem with this thesis of greater working age population, more urbanization, is there's not a linear relationship between those two things and economic growth or productivity increases. 
because what has a huge influence are all the things MSCI is looking at. The governance structure, the infrastructure, the level of corruption. What's the political environment like? What's the bureaucracy like? Are companies able to adapt to changing markets? Are new companies able to be easily formed? And so it very much depends on the country. So while it looks bright because of anywhere in the world, frontier markets have a strong future just looking at the potential economic growth. But we don't know if that potential will lead to actual higher investment returns. It has not over the past decade or more. Frontier markets have trailed the developed markets and the emerging markets over the longer term. What are the risks of investing in frontier markets? Well, first off, there's liquidity risk. These are small companies, and smaller companies are more difficult to trade, particularly if there's not a robust domestic market. If most of the trading is being done by foreign investors, that makes it even more challenging. For example, the average market capitalization or average company size based on their stock valuation for frontier markets is a billion dollars. The median is $680 million. That compares to emerging markets, which have an average market capitalization six times higher at $6 billion, and the median's $2 billion. The world index, which is just developed markets, the average market capitalization is $37 billion, so 37 times larger than frontier markets. Those smaller market caps makes it more difficult to trade particularly if there are limits to the amount of foreign ownership. Vietnam makes up 30% of the frontier markets index. Back in the mid-80s, it was one of the poorest countries in the world. Then in 1986, they announced some reforms that would open up the market to foreign trade, capital, more private ownership of businesses. They offered tax breaks to foreign companies to come to build businesses in the country. It looks great. Except that Vietnam also limits the percent of a company that can be owned by outside investors. In some cases, it's 50%. In others, it's 30%. And if that limit is hit, where the percent of the outstanding stock owned by foreign investors is at that limit, then a foreign investor that wants to buy the stock has to buy it from another foreign investor. And that can lead to those holdings selling for a premium. Typically, it can be a premium of 50%. To be able to buy a particular stock in Vietnam, a foreign investor potentially has to pay 50% more than what the shares are selling for on the domestic stock market. That can lead to some interesting distortions with regard to performance. There are also governance issues. I read one academic paper that showed the board size, the number of board members. The more board members there were, and the more board members were made up of civil servants or foreigners, the better the stock performance of particular companies. Whereas businesses that had fewer board members, a lot more insiders, their stock performance wasn't as good. And they looked specifically in the countries of Kenya, Tanzania, and Uganda. We see then that there's liquidity risk, potential capital control risk. 
governance risk. There's also foreign exchange risk. Nigeria is a member of the Frontier Market Index. 200 million people live in Nigeria. It's the largest economy in Africa. Yet its currency, the Naira, has fallen 40% relative to the dollar since early 2020 on the black market. That means even if the stock market returned zero, as a U.S. investor in Nigeria, you lost potentially 40%. The official exchange rate was devalued three times during that period. And because these are small economies, small markets, those flows of dollars and other currencies into that market to invest can distort the market. And then if outflows occur, that can also impact the prices of securities, which is why these countries implement some capital controls to sort of reduce some of the volatility of their currency. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. That's M-O-N. A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. The other thing to consider with regard to investing in frontier markets is the valuations. How expensive are these markets? Because if we pay more, the returns potentially will be less, particularly if the countries don't do as well as investors are expecting. Right now, if we look at the MSCI Frontier Market Index, 
its dividend yield is 2.8%. That seems attractive, yet the average dividend yield for that index going back to 2008 is 4.2%. Currently, the dividend yield is about 1.4 standard deviations away from that average. And dividends have been reduced because earnings have fallen 17% over the past year for the companies that make up the MSCI Frontier Market Index. Now, earnings have fallen around the world also. But if we look at the price-to-earnings ratio, what investors are willing to pay for $1 worth of earnings, the trailing P.E. for the MSCI Frontier Market Index is 17.7. Its average going back to 2008, is 12.8, so about two standard deviations away from its average. If we compare that to the MSCI Emerging Markets Index, its P.E. is a little higher at 18.9, but the average is 15. So just looking at the P.E. of frontier markets relative to its average, it's actually higher, a bigger deviation compared to emerging markets. We can't say frontier markets are cheap right now, nor can we say for emerging markets. In fact, most stock markets around the world are expensive relative to their averages. Let's take a look at performance. The MSCI Frontier Market Index started in 2002. It's returned 8.2% annualized, and it lagged the MSCI All-Country World Index by not very much, about 0.5% since 2002. But over the past 10 years, the Frontier Markets Index returned 5.3% annualized compared to 10.2% annualized for the MSCI All-Country World Index. Frontier Markets did outperform emerging markets over the past 10 years, 5.3% annualized for Frontier Markets versus 4.1% for emerging. Over the past five years, Frontier Markets have trailed both emerging and the global stock market. The five-year return has been 8.3% annualized. The ACWI returned 14.8% annualized. And emerging markets returned 13.9% annualized. So there was about a five percentage point lag for frontier markets. Now, we could say, well, maybe they're going to recoup that now. But again, we've seen that frontier markets are actually more expensive relative to their average than emerging markets are relative to its average. If we look at the returns of the iShares MSCI Frontier and Select Emerging Markets ETF, again, the ticker is FM, it's returned 7.7% annualized over the past five years. So it's actually trailed the Frontier Market Index by about a half a percentage point. It's also trailed on the three-year basis returning 5.7% versus 6.9% for the MSCI Frontier Market Index. And again, that ETF includes some emerging markets, and its largest weight is Kuwait, which is no longer a part of the Frontier Market Index. Other options to invest is an investor could just invest in single-country ETFs. For example, Vietnam is the largest weight in the Frontier Market Index, the oldest non-local Vietnam ETF is the VanEck Vectors ETF. Ticker is VTM. The expense ratio is 0.61%. Since its inception of August 2009, recognizing that was during the great financial crisis, 
over that 12-year period, it's returned negative 0.4%, and the 10-year return's been 1.3% annualized. Again, reinforcing that frontier markets have not lived up to their promise in terms of the potential opportunity with the favorable demographics, which the potential higher growth economy, the infrastructure and governance does make a difference. Now, surprisingly, the frontier market index is not as volatile as the emerging markets index or the global stock market. So while there are certainly risks we've discussed, if we just look at pure volatility, the standard deviation of the MSCI Frontier Markets Index over the past 10 years is 13.7% versus 14.1% for the global stock market and 17.7% for emerging markets. So emerging markets have been more volatile than frontier markets. From a drawdown perspective, what was the worst loss for frontier markets? It was from January 2008 to March 2009, that index lost 67%, similar to what emerging markets lost during roughly the same period. That index lost 65%. And then the global stock market, as measured by ACWI, lost 58%. That was its maximum drawdown. So we've shared a lot of data in this episode. The question is, should we invest in frontier markets. The opportunity set is there in terms of favorable working age population, smaller countries that have the potential to grow, more urbanization, the size of the population, 2 billion people, a third of the world's population, yet less than 1% of the global stock market size, and only producing about 3.5% of the world's GDP. It seems like a worthy investment. The problem is it's so small that even if you took a 1% weight of your overall equity allocation, you're now overweight frontier markets. If you take a 5% position, you're significantly overweight. But if it's a smaller position, is it meaningful to just invest 1% in frontier markets? Seems like it should be a little higher than that. And just to see how it turns out, just an additional layer of diversification, recognizing that there are the risks there because it is a smaller market for the impact of capital flows and foreign exchange, even if it hasn't shown up in the longer term volatility numbers. Frontier markets are intriguing. I currently don't have investments in frontier markets. I've heard about it for years. It would come up occasionally in, in institutional research when I was an advisor. The markets just always seem too expensive to me as people were trying to pay up for growth. And I think that's translated in lower returns than what we would hope for, given the potential opportunity. There is the potential for mid to high single digit returns long term for frontier markets. There's not a whole lot of ways to invest in them. The iShares ETF, FM, seems like a reasonable approach for U.S.-based investors. Presumably, there are other frontier market ETFs for those that live outside of the U.S. But it's certainly something that I'm going to consider investing in going forward just to see how it works out. That then is episode 347. Thanks for listening to the episode. If you would like to learn more about investing, becoming a better investor, there's two ways I can help with that. 
First, consider signing up for my weekly email newsletter, The Insider's Guide. It's where I share about that week's episode. I share the notes and research materials that I use to prepare it and share an essay on money, investing, and the economy to help you become a better investor. When you sign up for The Insider's Guide, you'll get my free guide, 10 Questions to Master Successful Investing. This is a summary of the key points from my book by the same name. The second way I can help is by you becoming a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus. Plus membership gives you essential portfolio tools, training, and a community to invest with confidence and achieve your financial goals. There's over 1,000 Money for the Rest of Us Plus members. They continue as members because they get access to a proven investment approach and expert portfolio insights delivered in a clear and concise style they can understand. Here's some of what you get with Plus Membership. Global multi-asset class portfolio examples. A monthly investment conditions and strategy report to help you keep your emotions in check. An exclusive member-only podcast called Money for the Rest of Us Plus, as well as an ad-free version of the regular podcast. And with both of those podcasts, you get written transcripts. Plus Membership includes best-in-class video lessons, portfolio-building tools and templates, as well as access to my portfolio holdings and trades. You'll be able to interact with other members in the member forum and ultimately get the tools and the community you need to feel confident in your investing. Plus, membership is a voice of calm and reason amidst the chaos. We'd love to have you as a member. You can learn more at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I'm not considered a specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.